fierce, determined and passionate are all words that may surprise many people when thinking of bookkeepers here in Australia. And yet this very much and these words sum up our guest today, Melbourne-based bookkeeper and founder of successful bookkeeping company On The Money Bookkeeping, Carmen Morris, is our special guest today on the podcast. This is a great story that has a bookkeeper willing to challenge many of the traditional norms of the bookkeeping world of the past and of someone who views every setback and challenge as a positive. My name is Rob Marshall and this is a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers. Bookkeepers, helping bookkeepers, helping business. Carmen Morris is very much one of those bookkeepers, helping bookkeepers, helping business. Enjoy episode 20 of Heart of the Bookkeeper. It never ceases to give me a great thrill and enjoyment to be able to have the opportunity to sit down and speak to bookkeepers who are passionate and have a real drive about what they do and why they're doing it. And that's where I think we're headed today. In fact, I'm sure we're headed today. I want to welcome to Heart of the Bookkeeper, Carmen Morris. Great to have you joining us, Carmen. Thank you, Rob. I really appreciate the invitation. It's something that I've uh, had on my radar for a while because I've used that word uh, sort of fierce and uh, passionate. So I'm going to kick off our conversation today by introducing a concept that we've had on Heart of the Bookkeeper for a while now where we try and set up a bit of a, a mini balance sheet for the person that we're speaking to at the time about your journey. And I'm really interested to get a few what I call opening balances to set the scene for who is Carmen Morris. So I've called it out. I, I, my perception, and I've only sort of got to know you in, in recent years, is that you are a very competitive type of person, that you're fiercely determined. Have I got that right? So I guess my question, my opening, my first opening balance is, Carmen Morris, describe to us Carmen Morris. Who do you, how do you see yourself? Competitive would be correct. I also like to set, it's really about setting standards for myself. When I've worked in jobs in the past, the standards of work that were good enough, were not, you know, we're good enough within the organisation, we're not good enough for me. Mm-hmm. So I like to set high standards. It doesn't matter what it is that I'm doing, whether it's bookkeeping, whether it's my hobbies. Mm-hmm. I do like to set goals for myself, work towards those and achieve great results. Basically challenge myself to do the best that I can in whatever field I happen to be playing in. Beautiful. So extending that out a little bit more, is that something that you've had to acquire or teach yourself or is that something that you've felt has just been part of your fabric most of your life? Were you competitive? Were you determined as a younger person or is that something you've had to develop in your in your life as, as time has gone by? I've definitely been very independent right since maybe birth. My mum did make, my parents, both of them actually, have made comments that from a very young age, I was pushing them away. No, I don't want help with uh, tying up my shoelaces. I'll do it myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's carried through my life, one very much of independence uh, and being able to stand on my own two feet and do things without the assistance of other people. Yeah. Uh, so that is something that's very ingrained in me. It's not something that I've had to learn. But I think along the way, I've also seen 
what is possible when you have money below, you know, beyond just a subsistence level. Yeah. And I decided that I wanted a life that was comfortable. I wanted to be able to have money to not just pay the bills, but to enjoy hobbies and to travel. And so I knew that I would need to do something more than just have a job. Yep. And for me, running a business was probably going to be the easiest way to create that for myself. So I began initially in direct sales. Mm -hmm. I didn't make a lot of money, Mm -hmm. but I learned an incredible number of skills that to this day serve me incredibly well in my bookkeeping business. Mm, Yeah. And and we're going to dig more into that in a moment because I I did, as I do with some of my guests, just ask for a little bit of a a rap sheet on on their journey. And I did note something that really caught my attention because it's in my hitting zone. And that is that that understanding that to be a bookkeeper, sometimes you need to be well-rounded and have some extensive understanding of different industries, different businesses, of course. So we might tap back into that a bit in a moment because I I do believe that's a a key component for uh, some form of, of success as a bookkeeper. So we'll move on to my balance sheet item number two. You did mention briefly about travel. And I've always reckoned that sometimes you can also, you know, not necessarily categorise a person, but certainly get a feel for a person by their travel habits and in particular the destinations that they choose or, or call out as their favourites. What's your favourite travel destination? I know you've travelled extensively around the world. Have you got one place that you go, look, if I could go there every year or I could go there every six months, what would it be or where would it be? I'm not the kind of person who wants to visit the same place over and over again. Mm -hmm. I have been on a plane before going to a new destination for the first time and sat next to someone who says, oh, this is our 20th trip to (laughs) such and such place. Uh, In my lifetime, I've traveled, I've calculated it actually. I added up all the individual trips that I've done and I've spent a year of my life overseas. Wow. Everything from North America to Pacific Islands, Asia and Europe. I've yet to cover Africa and I haven't done South America yet either. Every country is so different. I mean, there are many things that, you know, as a human race, there are many, many similarities, but culturally there are some amazing differences and sometimes I just have to laugh at the things that are normal in some countries, which would be absolutely ridiculous or strange in our country. Mm. And I find it's a very good way of rounding out your personality by getting out there and seeing how different cultures operate, yep. whether it's how they operate you know, as families, as communities, even their toileting habits. There are some hilarious <laughs> things I've discovered in my travels. <laughs> uh, and it makes you realise that, yes, there's a lot of similarities between human beings, but also vast differences. Yeah. It's a very enriching experience. Yeah. Great call out. Oh, I'm... Obviously, getting my head around the whole toilet thing, but um, <laughs> and I've got to say that uh, we're not going to go there right now. But um, I, I think that's a really, really good and interesting um, perspective on things. I would have expected that you would have gone, you know, oh, I love Italy, and I'd go there every every month. But to say that the cultural experiences, you know, define not define, but make that experience even richer, I, I love that. You may have therefore answered number three for me, but I'm happy for you to spin it differently, the opening balances that I'm establishing on Carmen Morris. My question is, what's something in your life to date that you are yet to achieve? You mentioned not going to South America, so it could be that, but it could be something else. I don't mind where you go. There would be a few things. Definitely more travel is on the cards for me. 
Uh, there are things that I would love to experience, you know, things even I've done before, some more whitewater rafting, some more skydiving, uh, just extraordinary experiences that really stick with you for life. Yeah. Then there would also be things like, for example, competitive ballroom dancing. Uh, I'd like to achieve some more trophies. Right. Yep. We'll and that's talk all about just about that. getting, yeah, getting better at something and enjoying mm-hmm. it at the same time. So travel, and then perhaps also meeting someone and settling down in a long-term committed relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And financially, just continuing to kick goals. Well, I think uh, there wouldn't be too many that wouldn't class that as something in their life that they're they're trying to still achieve. So, but there's some there's some real there's some really interesting ones in there for me. So we're going to unpack some of that as we go through. Maybe tell me, Carmen, where, from your point of view, what's your first conscious memory of starting out in life and what sort of memories do you have of, of growing up in particular? There are a couple of very interesting moments in my life. The first one is the day that I turned 18. I had my driver licence test scheduled for the morning of. Mm-hmm. And I already had my car sitting in the driveway ready to go. So I took <laughs> off that evening and said to mum and dad, you know, I won't be home tonight, right. <laughs> which they were horrified to hear because <laughs> previously I had a curfew. So for me, getting my wheels, my license and a, and a set of wheels was my road to freedom, to being able mm. to experience things that I wanted to without having to wait for someone to A, give me permission and B, transport me to and fro. Mm-hmm. The second biggest one would probably be getting kicked out of home. So a bit of a dispute at home and uh, dad said, no, you've got to move out and you're also losing your job. I worked for him at the time and I had to go off. And at that time I lived with my boyfriend and then he was my future husband and had to get myself a job somewhere else. So that was another interesting moment in my life where it was totally out of left field Mm -hmm. and forced me to look at life a little bit differently in terms of, Mm. okay, I thought it was going this way and now it's steering in a different direction. Mm. Mm. They're all both very, very much driving my independence. And I don't have any, like I don't have any regrets about what happened. Mm -hmm. Everything, even the challenging moments in life help us to become who we are. Mm. And I felt that, you know, some of these things that happened in my life that were maybe less than pleasant have actually had a very positive impact in the long run. I love that. I hear people say the words define, you know, this defined me or that defined me. I'm not suggesting that you're not even saying that, but I like the fact that you've spun it that those moments were the, the positive you know, and it may be in hindsight or you may have even recognised it at the time, I don't know. But I think sometimes we do put too much emphasis on things that we say define us. I'm not so sure about that word define. I think it's more about the journey. I call call it out probably too regularly, the journey and and the way that we approach the things that send us off on a fork or send us off on a different direction. And clearly you're doing that. I, I got to ask the question, you didn't tell us, what was the car that was sitting in the driveway that you were going to uh, drive away on on that first night when you got your licence? What did you have? It was a Ford Falcon, which wasn't really what I wanted. My dad actually only gave me two options. It was a second-hand Ford Falcon, which was book value, and I knew that financially that was a better choice, even back then. (laughs) (laughs) Or I could have had a brand-new Suzuki Swift, which my dad had just won in a lottery. Oh, wow. (laughs) But I would have had to have paid him back the full purchase price with interest at ATO rates. (laughs) There you go. Well, in a touch of irony, I bought my. I've got. Uh, I've had five sons, and my younger son 
purchased, we'll say in inverted commas, his first vehicle yesterday, um, but uh, with a little bit of help from Dad and Mum that uh, might see some interest. And I hadn't thought of the ATO rates either, so that's a good one. I like that. You mentioned, you've mentioned Mum and Dad a couple of times now. You've told me in the past it's Paul and... Hey, Care. Hey, Care. All right. Hey, care. So, mm-hmm. so I'm going with Mum clearly may have come from... Uh, Overseas, perhaps? Is that right? Or have yes, I got that wrong? Both yeah. parents. Mum is, well, can, she considers herself Austrian. She was born in East Germany under right. Hitler. Yep. Uh, and the family, she had Austrian and German parents, and they've uh, fled to Austria. So she was there from before the age of one. Mm-hmm. And my father, uh, Czechoslovakia, as it was known at the time, now the Czech Republic. Yep. And he fled communism to come to Australia. Oh, wow. Okay. So so both of them had sort of, you know, not a lot, I'm guessing, when they first rocked up in Australia? Correct. Uh, just a few dollars in their pocket. Well, whatever the equivalent was at the time, they would have exchanged their currency. And Dad had a distant relative living in Melbourne. So he came here and he had to memorise the address because... He was afraid that if uh, the communists roughed him up on the way out, they would confiscate the address and he wouldn't even know where he was oh, going. Geez, wow. So uh, those sorts of things yeah, were necessary at that time to escape that life and come to a better, you know, a country where there were better opportunities. Mm, mm. So my parents have never given me a handout. Everything that I've achieved in business, whether it's you know, every, every time I've borrowed money off my parents, it's been with interest. doesn't matter if it's a house or a car. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was always expected to be repaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've had to yeah, – that independence thing is just all the way through my life. It's I was like that when I was born, but then it's also been strengthened by the actions of my parents where they've not allowed me to have, have handouts. So, you know, I'm not a financial outpatient now of my parents, which no. I think a lot of kids are because they haven't had to learn the value of money by earning it themselves. Yep, yep. What did Dad do? What, what was his business? You mentioned that uh, you worked for Dad. Um, was he in bookkeeping or financial services? What did Dad do for a no. living? No. Far from it. He uh, did a double degree of mechanical and electronic engineer. So he's a mechatronic engineer and he started a business in electronics. Right. Servicing the kind of equipment that mining companies might rent but not buy, at mm-hmm. least back in those days. Mm-hmm. And then eventually got into computer rentals. That was that was in those days mm. when computers were quite expensive to purchase outright. So he did a lot of rental with options to buy or just straight out rentals. Mm-hmm. And that business grew over a period of, I'm just trying to think how long it was now, 20 plus years to, yeah, a a big business that went internationally. So I absorbed a lot about business through my dad, just through osmosis. You've taken me back because as some of the listeners know, I did uh, start out in computers myself back in the day. And I've just remembered now, you've you've really triggered a a memory that I'd forgotten about, that the computer rental market really was a big thing for a while there. Uh, Obviously don't see that necessarily now, but there was a period of time where it was all about computer rentals. And I I think I even toyed with trying to dabble in that myself at one point. So um, dad was clearly, you know, sort of at the cutting edge there. And and mum, did she she work as well or is she somebody who uh, preferred to work with the family? Well, she did a little bit for the business just so that she didn't lose her hand as far as having some kind of 
job in a commercial sense. Mm-hmm. She was a stay-at-home mum, so the income from the business was sufficient for her to be able to stay at home, which was really great because I had a mum to pick me up from school and, you know, make me lunches in the morning and do a home-cooked meal from all raw ingredients every single dinner time. And also, she was there to shuttle us around to various different activities in the afternoons. Beautiful. And brothers and sisters, or or are you a uh, a sole child? Uh, I have one younger sister. She's three years my junior. Right. Okay. And mum and dad, are they still with us, or have um, have they since um, left us? No, they're both with us. Wow. They're um, going very strong. They're in their mid to late seventies, and. Health-wise, great. My mum will outwalk the average 40-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the stories that we've had um, uh, Melinda Van Dyke recently and uh, I think her um, she called out her um, parents' uh, origins, very similar to yours, coming out of, you know, real dangerous situations back with communism and also during World War II. And, and just, to, you know, it fascinates me how... Somebody could just leave a country, you know, we're seeing it in Ukraine at the moment where people are just literally walking away with a, a rucksack or whatever it might be to, to, to go to another country or completely a, a, an alien space to where they've lived most of their lives and to be able to just pick up and, and take off again. So nothing but admiration for people like your mum and dad, Carmen, who have been able to do that and be able to establish businesses like your dad did and to be able to, to grow a family in a country that isn't their country of origin. Full of respect for those sort of people and uh, love that story. From your perspective, those early sort of moments with dad, you mentioned that, you know, there was a, a moment where it, it didn't work out and you had to move on. What, what was next for Carmen Morris? What did, was that the point that you started to dabble in bookkeeping and get involved with bookkeeping and financial services? No, I actually went and uh, got a few other jobs in the meantime and then, funny enough, ended up back working for Dad in his second business right. some years later on. Mm-hmm. But there were many detours along the way. I did a, a brief stint of photography, which was studying full-time for one year. Mm-hmm decided I didn't want to continue that. So there were a few different detours in terms of jobs that I had reception. And funny enough, I started to get pulled into accounts payable there, then and got another job in high volume accounts payable processing. And because I was very fast on a keyboard, mm-hmm. I managed to smash out huge numbers in, <laughs> you know, with a high level of accuracy. And I ended up getting a job as a PA in a company that made me redundant about two weeks after starting. <laughs> they had a restructure. So I said to my parents, I know you're looking for someone to help you out in your business. I'll come and help you while I look for another job. And I stayed for eight years. Wow. And in that particular company, they had more or less just gotten started and bookkeeping was part of the role. Mm -hmm. And I fell into that. So I'd had a little bit of experience, obviously, with the AP processing. Yep. And at that particular job where I worked, doing that work, I ended up getting pulled out of that department and working specifically on... uh, making payment arrangements with, well, I don't know if I was really making the payment arrangements, but I was handling all of these post-dated checks. That that company went under some years later. Mm-hmm. They were in great financial hardship, but someone needed to manage it. It was quite a big job. Uh, so that was what I did there. So I'd already had some experience in that, you know, whole accounts payable scene. And then working for my parents, I had MYOB in front of me and I started to learn how to process 
the tax agent who looked after my parents' businesses over a period of many, many years, the, the wife of the tax agent actually spent quite a lot of time helping me understand what was wrong with my transactions. We had the phone calls, we'd both have the file open. This is before, you know, sharing anything in a cloud situation or, you know, Zoom calls. It was literally like, okay, you open the file, I'll open the file, click here, click there. Okay, this transaction, it's wrong because of X. And I was actually blown away even then at how much time she invested in me Mm -hmm. because she didn't have to do that. So Mm. Helen Dossis, uh, I still remember you to this day. Uh, and I'll never forget yep. Yep, the, the help that she gave me there. And then, of course, I did some MYOB training courses as well in the eight years that I worked uh, with my parents, predominantly dad, really. Uh, and those courses taught me a whole lot more about best practice, obviously good use of software. Yep. I don't know how many courses I did, but it was quite a number over the years. And so my skill set just developed over time then ended up leaving for working for my parents uh, after following a divorce. I thought, great, I'm finally doing this big overseas trip I've been wanting to do for a while. Yep. When I came back, I got a job working for another family business and the lady that I worked with there converting to QuickBooks said, oh, you should become a BAS agent. Right. Did you know what a BAS agent was at that point or...? I knew it was what she was doing more or less, yep. that it was a contract, you know, that you were a contractor providing a bookkeeping service and I think that just planted a seed and it was sitting there for a while. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know whether she repeated it a few times or whether I heard it from other people as well. But initially I thought, mm, I don't want to go around from factory to factory, sit in a broken chair in front of a really crappy old computer and do bookkeeping. That wasn't my idea of fun. Yeah. So I just pushed the idea to the side that company I was working for that did the QuickBooks conversion ended up getting bought out by a bigger company, which had about 600 employees. And I got some great experience as an assistant accountant working in that company. Mm-hmm. And they ended up making me redundant. Uh, I didn't fit there. Yeah. Uh, I wanted a higher level of accuracy than my boss would let me produce. And I was getting in their way. And when we talk about unpleasant things that are happening in our life that we're grateful for later, I'm grateful for being booted out because I got a little bit of money that was just enough to carry me through starting my business as a bookkeeper, getting my Bassett registration sorted out and just getting me through those few bumps in the road. When you first start out, yes, you might have a client, it's a big rescue job, but then it peters out and all of a sudden the money's starting to slow down. I had that little bit of buffer from my termination pay to just carry me through. So that was another experience in life that set me on a different path. So is that the evolution of, um, now correct me if I've got this wrong, your bookkeeping currently, your bookkeeping practice called On The Money Bookkeeping, is that right? Mm-hmm, yep. correct. So, and it was that, you, there was no other alliterations of that initially, That that's where it all started, the origins? Correct, just coming up to our 10th birthday next month. Oh, so that's, wow. yeah, same company name. Wow. So yeah, I think there's like so many people listening into this right now are obviously, not obviously, but most likely will be bookkeepers who are a lot earlier in the journey to what perhaps you are and certainly where I'm at right uh, these days. At that point, when you're literally just living off some money you've got from a termination pay and that's about it, was there concern? Was there angst? Was there worry that it wouldn't turn out, you know, was it, did it feel like you were taking huge risk or was it a case of, I know I can do this and I, I feel confident I can do this and I'm going to do what it takes to get through, you know, some lean times at the moment? 
I was committed to making it work. I wasn't interested in going back to a job. I think by that stage, I had realized that I wasn't exactly highly employable. Mm. I was far too independent in my thinking. And I also found that in some jobs, my boss would be threatened by me and make my life uncomfortable. And I decided that that wasn't the road for me. Self-employment was the way to go. And now it was just a case of, okay, let's get out there. It's going, it might well be rough in the beginning until I get some regular streams of income from various different clients coming in. For me, failure wasn't a, really a thought. Mm-hmm. It was just a case of, okay, I've just got to push myself to go out and find clients however I can. And that included door knocking back then, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't, wouldn't even do today <laughs> and didn't necessarily get great client, you know, quality clients doing it that way. But I was willing to do whatever it took, leaflets, door knocking, anything really to get some business. And so for me, it was like, I just need to make sure that I can keep having the money coming in. And if one client turned out to be a rat bag, I would sack them, even (laughs) if I didn't have a huge amount of money and I would move on to to finding the next one. It's one of the challenges that I think many new bookkeepers or even some that are, you know, are partway along the journey struggle with, and that is how to get new business when starting out. You mentioned door knocking. I mean, I think back on my journey, you know, I went through that whole period of life where I thought the best answer to get new, you know, new business or new clients was to get some biros made up with my name on them and a phone number, you know. <laughs> so we've all had our our different approaches and different ways that we, th- we think will work. With the experience you've had and now with the experience of where you're at, how would you, if you were talking to a bunch of people right now who are just starting their bookkeeping journey and their bookkeeping business, what suggestions would you give to get new business when starting out as a bookkeeper? It's really challenging in those early days. There are a lot of strategies that I would implement, but they all require a fair bit of time. Yeah. The first one is when you get some clients and you do some good quality work cleaning up, don't be shy about bringing it to the attention of the tax agent. Build really good relationships with tax agents. Yeah. Some of them will not care. Some of them will not value bookkeepers. There are so many out there, unfortunately, that are like that. But you will find those that think, wow, this is really good. This makes my job easy. I don't have to do as much work to get the tax return done and I can still charge the same amount of money. So I would say invest in tax agents. Yep. A website with uh, some good content and some SEO, which you may or may not have money for in the early days, is also a very good strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have... I've worked on building my LinkedIn profile not, you know, and the connections mm. that I've got. Not that mm. that necessarily leads to work. However, if you've got time on your hands, mm-hmm. you can sign up to something like uh, what's it called, Sales Navigator. Mm-hmm. And you can okay. start doing a lot of messaging on LinkedIn. So I actually pay someone in the Philippines to do that on my behalf. Wow. He's actually a British expat, so he speaks excellent English. Mm-hmm. And he manages all of my marketing for me. Right. So if you've got time, you could do that yourself and just sending out massive amounts of messages that are very friendly saying, you know, do you have issues with your bookkeeping? And we get a lot of leads today Hmm. from that strategy. Well, that's great. That's uh, there's some excellent tips there. I think I think you really nailed it right at the start when you just said it takes time. I think the the key to it is to to have patience, to have a strategy, and some of those tips you just gave were gold. But it is about time. And I think over the journey, my observations are those that perhaps haven't made it, if you want to put it that way, is because their impatience has seen them fall short when they didn't need to fall short. And time is a a scary thing because, you know, time sometimes means that there's 
not a lot of money in the bank and you're wondering where the next dollar's coming from. But it kind of is, is a... Uh, you can't do one without the other. The money coming in won't come without you giving yourself some time. So I, I, I like that call out, but some of those tips uh, I hadn't heard of. What is it? Sales Navigator? I'll, uh, Sales prob- Navigator. Yeah. I might yeah, so you need to have out. a paid subscription to LinkedIn because otherwise the free right. LinkedIn will only allow you to send so many messages. And you do need to send them out at some, you know, with some degree of volume. But if you're starting out and you have plenty of time on your hands, you can do that yourself. And you will find people that are interested that allows you to at least get to a phone call and have a chat about what their queries and problems and issues are to see whether there's the potential for their next stage, which would be a review of their books to see, you know, start pointing out to them some of the issues that they have. So for me, I've developed a sales process over time to achieve a really high strike rate. But the other thing that I want to say as far as bookkeeping and starting a business goes, not every bookkeeper I think is cut out to run a business because Mm. you need to have an entrepreneurial mindset. Mm -hmm. You need to be willing to do marketing and willing to do sales and not go, oh, gee, I hate doing this. That's really not much fun. If you are shying away from those things, you may well always struggle because Mm. it's absolutely part and parcel of any business. And until you are big enough that you can pay someone else to do that, you need to do it. So I think sometimes we should be asking ourselves, am I cut out to run my own business and do all of those things, manage the HR and the recruiting? That's assuming you want to go beyond just yourself. Do I want to manage a marketing strategy? Do I want to be doing sales calls? You know, ask yourself, do you just want to be self-employed, which is how a lot of bookkeepers operate? Or do you want to run a business that actually has a value in terms as a, as an asset to sell it later on. Yeah, no, it's some great calls there, Carmen, and I I, I got to say I agree with you. I mean, it's 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 harsh in some cases. It's, it's it feels a bit harsh to say, you know, to to put it on somebody. Are you cut out for this? But it's a it's a question that has to be asked. And clearly, in some instances, the the response, if you're honest, is probably not. You know, you're probably better off. Um, using your skills. It's, it's not diminishing the fact that you may be a really good bookkeeper. In fact, you might be one of the better bookkeepers going around, but you may be better off seeking employment in bookkeeping rather than trying to run that business that's just leading to a lot of angst, a lot of heartache and, and, a, and a lot of hesitation probably more than anything. And, and and that entrepreneurial thing that you spoke about, you know, that doesn't sit comfortably with, with everybody. You know, a lot of people may assume that that's my demeanour and, and certainly I probably feel as though that's been a large part of, of my uh, journey and successes. But there's large chunks of, you know, you mentioned about making cold call sales calls or whatever. I've never enjoyed that. I've never, never enjoyed that. So the route I've probably taken in regards to that is, you know, and, and let ref, referencing what you've said about nails, nails, sales navigator, that would be right up my alley. You know, if I can pay somebody else to do the cold calling, I'll do yeah. it any day of the week. So I think even within the entrepreneurial spirit, the entrepreneurial approach, there may be some com- components of that that you need to examine and, and find an avenue to, to, to fill those gaps, you might say. And I mean, the industry is changing. It used to be yeah. one very one of one of just solo operators. Yep. There are a lot more bookkeepers taking on staff now, whether it con- they're contractors or employees. For, so for someone who doesn't feel comfortable doing all of those things, you can still work in the industry, yep. but have the support of people around you who can take the stress away of the things that you really don't want to do. Yeah. 
Yep. No, good call. Good call. And businesses like mine are looking for people just like that. There you go. Okay, we might uh, put a shout out for your email address or something at the end if um, there's somebody lurking around. So uh, talking about location and where you are, you're, you're in Melbourne. Uh, your base has been Melbourne. I've noted that you've spent most of your life, other than those times travelling around, that year effectively travelling around, you spent most of your life living in Melbourne. I was there uh, only recently. I love Melbourne. We mm-hmm. go to go to Melbourne any day of the, the week. It's a, a great place to go. Having said that, from what I'm gathering, you've also had a bit of a journey and a struggle with, with staffing and I think that seems to be the common theme across Australia right now. And you mentioned about using somebody offshore for, for your sales and and I'm led to believe that that's not the only offshoring that you have engaged with, especially in recent times. Is that correct? Correct, yes. So we have, oh, well, I came to the realisation, and this is the entrepreneur mindset in me, was that I don't just want to be self-employed. I actually want a business and a business generates a profit. Yeah. And using only Australian labour, unfortunately, with the charge out rates that we have, makes that a virtual impossibility, mm. even if you're not paying rent. Mm. And so... You know, I could see many people in our industry, maybe more in the accounting space than bookkeeping, getting into offshoring. And I knew that that would be a good way forward. Yes, it would be a bit challenging. Potentially, there would be some initial obstacles trying to work out how best to navigate this space. But after some hit and misses, we've finally found a strategy that works extremely well. So we can have a certain number of Australian bookkeepers who maybe to their own joy can actually do some of the more senior work and not the everyday correct stuff. They can get more involved in the heavy duty stuff Mm -hmm. and they can help mentor some of the offshore staff. So that's been really, really great. Uh, And also developing a deep and narrow team with these staff so that not everybody is reporting to me, which I think is one of the other issues that we see in a lot of bookkeeping firms as they grow, is everyone's reporting to the principal and then they become the bottleneck and it cannot grow beyond a certain point in time. So that shallow and wide structure uh, is really limiting and will only allow you to get so far and probably burn out if you don't change it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about the offshoring conversation is that it has been a little bit polarising in, in our industry, in our community for a while now. Um, did you have some initial struggles? You know, the, the common thread that's thrown up is that, you know, we're we're not benefiting our own economy in some ways by not employing local people and, you know, we're giving somebody else an opportunity from overseas that, you know, could be given to somebody locally. Was that and was that some considerations for you initially? And when you finally sort of moved past that, you know, you've, you've got a different lens on that as you've just called out? I never had that way of looking at things. And I think it comes very much down to mindset. You can look at the same situation from two different angles and have a completely different perspective. Mm. The way that I looked at it was that I was not taking jobs away from any Australian. We didn't actually have enough of them to begin with. Mm -hmm. What I was doing was actually creating an opportunity for my business to thrive by engaging offshore staff because I cannot find them here. So now also when I hire Aussies... I can actually hire really top 
people who know what they're doing in the BAS agent space, not just someone who's done a bit of bookkeeping for a company over a period of few years and has very little industry experience in different industries. So now when I have Aussies working for me, they get an extraordinary variety. They don't need to deal with client politics, disagreements, Mm -hmm. clients being difficult or bills not getting paid or anything of that nature. Mm. They can very happily do the work that they love and give away all the other stuff. They have the support of senior people around them to work on clients that they could otherwise never manage on their own. So, for example, uh, one of our clients is over 100 employees and the staff that I have working on that, the the, the actual what we call grinders, that's not a derogatory term, it's just uh, it rhymes with grinders, minders, finders, <laughs> uh, which are different <laughs> types of roles within a production team. And they could not on their own ever manage a client like that. So, in fact, their job is more interesting working as part of a team because they can take on a much more challenging client and get help when they need it. So from my perspective, those people, instead of doing the bill processing and the bank rec, they're overseeing the offshore team member doing that and they're getting more involved with client communication. Okay, you've got queries about leave balances or how would this affect, you know, their leave balance uh, after this many pay runs. So they can get involved in those kind of client communications, which is more interesting and it could be even more, far more complex than that again, rather than the actual day-to-day processing. Mm. So I feel yeah. that it's really win-win. We reduce our costs, we increase our profits. I create more interesting jobs for my Aussie staff. And as far as I'm concerned, my clients win because I can continue to deliver a service at a lower price. If I have to keep increasing my prices because Australian wages are rising and I'm not making any money, then it's costing my clients more as well. So I always looked at offshoring as a triple win. Like it's for everyone. It's actually a quadruple for my Aussie staff. I'm creating jobs overseas that they're incredibly grateful for. I'm making more money and I can keep my prices low for my clients. For me, it is an absolutely fantastic quadruple win. And and there you go. There's that uh, approach that we spoke about earlier of, of looking at a situation and, and looking at the positive outcomes that can come from it. And that's where I was hoping that you would go, that um, I think the negatives are only ever examined in the offshoring conversation rather than the positives that you've called out. So I'm really pleased that we've been able to sort of unpack that or strip that back a bit to be able to hear from you, who's somebody who's been through and is still going through that experience to understand that the the Australian side of it, you might say, has more positives than there were negatives or are negatives at the moment in particular. So uh, I'm, I'm loving that aspect of what you've just called out there, Carmen. We touched on this a little bit earlier as well when we talked about your opening balances. We've talked about, you know, a bit of entrepreneurial uh, aspect to, to running a bookkeeping business. You've also mentioned, you know, obviously with the experiences you spent with your dad and a few other jobs you did along the way, that's held you in good stead. I know I've always felt that from for my story, for, for, for my um, journey and, and perceived successes, if you want to call it, it was purely on the back that of that I grew up in an environment where I had a dad who was an entrepreneur and he owned fruit orchards, he owned farms, he owned manufacturing plants, he owned retail shops. And so growing up, I was able to experience all of those rich environments and different environments so that when I became a bookkeeper and probably more so a, a consulting type bookkeeper, 
I just felt totally natural walking into any environment. It didn't phase me. I could walk into a manufacturing plant and talk, you know, inventory. I could walk into a retail shop and talk point of sale. I could walk into a walk onto a farm and talk cattle and sheep because, thankfully, I'd had that broad and wide experience. Is is that something that you think is advantageous to have? I would say yes. My dad didn't really groom me to take over his business, so he didn't make a conscious effort to teach me about the things that are needed to run a business. I think that he thought, no, my daughters are not going to want to go into electronics, which is true. (laughs) Neither my sister or or I had any interest in that. And I think also from his point of view, he wanted us to make our own choices because some parents will steer their kids to follow a path that they feel is best for them. And they took a bit of a sort of hands-off approach. You kids make decisions that make you happy. There was always a focus on, okay, yes, you want to go to uni, great. You don't want to go to uni, that's fine. But what do you want to do in life? Mm. What interests you? That was, you know, the discussion in high school and there was no pressure to go to uni and, and get a degree and become a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant. Funny, I became an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, as a mature age student, I went back and studied. Uh, so from that point of view, it wasn't a big thing in my life in terms of being able to be comfortable with business, but it would have helped in ways that I'm maybe not even conscious of. Yeah. What made a really big difference, I think, to me being comfortable was my direct selling experience because I had to learn about people skills, uh, how to communicate with different types of people as far as their temperaments are concerned, being able to adapt to them and selling was a part of that. And that really developed my confidence because I was, I don't know if I would say that I was necessarily introvert, I would say I'm an ambivert, but it definitely helped draw out a little more extroversion than I would perhaps (laughs) normally display. Mm. Um, So that's made a really big difference in having the confidence to go out and talk to pretty much anybody because I'd already done that. Mm -hmm. And that that was a big thing for me in terms of helping me build my bookkeeping business. Again, some great analogies there. And I love the fact that you've positioned that in a positive in, in a positive sense. And I want to qualify too that um, for anybody who's tuning in that's going, well, I didn't have the sort of upbringing you had, Rob, or even Carmen's upbringing, you know, working with a dad in a business or whatever. I'm just a, you know, I'm a bookkeeper. It's just having a red hot crack and I'm, I'm focused on tradies or I'm focused on retail and I feel comfortable with just that. That's, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, we've had a few guests no. on Heart of the Bookkeeper who, uh, then Michelle Grisdale in particular called out that, you know, she, she set her bookkeeping business up by, you know, specifically focus on tradies and working with tradies and, and she's been able to be extremely successful with that. So you don't have to be the all-rounder. Uh, in my case, it did work. It did, it did help me grow a significantly large and, and rich, I suppose, a wide, broader base. But that's not necessarily the be-all and end-all to have a successful bookkeeping business. Yeah, you can definitely specialise. Yeah, yeah, and we're seeing that more and more, and we certainly celebrate that at the ICB. You know, we've we've obviously played a, a fairly significant role in in calling out things like the NDIS, and even uh, you know we've put a bit of focus on even things like being in the community and sporting associations and stuff like that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be about this broad base. If you're out there and you're listening and you're going, look, oh, you know, I'm, I'm actually making a, a really good run at it, focusing on retail, well, then we celebrate that. That's, that. that's an excellent result. 
what um, where where are you at now, Carmen? What sort of things, especially when we put a bookkeeping focus on you and your life and where you've landed, where do you see yourself going in the next five years, ten years? Is is there ten years? Is there fifteen years? What what what's in the future for Carmen Morrison in particular on the money bookkeeping? Well, my more immediate goals are filling the gaps for some of the staff that left last year. So filling the the space that we have for a senior production manager which is someone who's basically first level management and managing our grinders. So we call this person our minder. They're looking after the production team and communicating with the client managers. Uh, Then it would be to get another client manager. Sorry, there's also the senior bookkeeper that left we need to replace. I'm also training up right now one of my client managers that's been with me about seven months. Mm -hmm. I'd want to hire another client manager and then that would be my opportunity to start reversing out of the production team. Mm -hmm. And I want to explain that just because there'll be a lot of people in bookkeeping who are still very hands-on who might like to get there and it is definitely a process. Mm -hmm. You need to have certain key people filling certain key functions before you can withdraw. Mm -hmm. From there, I would be doing a lot of background work on processes and things that we just haven't had time for when, you know, as business owners, we've got our hands dealing with clients, even if we're not, you know, smashing a keyboard and doing bank rec. In the longer term, having had that one team finally complete with that structure that I've just mentioned. So just to kind of clarify, that's four grinders. Mm -hmm. It's one production manager and it's two client managers. Mm. So one is an assistant client manager learning, getting ready to break off into their own team. There's only a certain amount of people that you can manage at any one time effectively. So obviously continuing to grow the revenue, continuing to grow the employee base to create that perfect team structure and then basically replicate it. That is that is the idea. Right. Say, so great, we now have this one team. We're going to go and create another team. So that team would split off basically half and two teams would start out with, you know, obviously only one client manager each. We'd have to promote a production manager and you'd have two grinders. And then those teams would be allowed to flourish. So it's this, it's like uh, cell replication. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it, it divides it. and then it yeah. grows and it divides again. So that is the plan for the future. Wow. No, that, that's an amazing model. And Certainly probably one that I haven't heard a lot of people suggest that that's, uh, that's their process moving forward. I, I'm, I'm fascinated, absolutely fascinated. I am reflecting on the term grinder. I, it suddenly dawned on me. I think I started out my working career pretty much as a grinder because I worked for my dad on the farm and I think for the first six months of my life all I did was have a grinder, being a, all being a, <laughs> an angle grinder, in my hand cleaning up an old trailer. That's basically all I did for the first... Uh, probably five or six months of my work career. So uh, maybe maybe I've been a grinder as well. Um, but your yeah. approach your approach is something that um, is unique, uh, Carmen, and I, I love it. And, uh, you know, there may be opportunity down the track. We might try and unpack that even a little bit more because I think there'll be a few people listening in going, wow, that, that, is, a, that is a sensationally different kind of lens or approach to growing a bookkeeping business. And I've got to say, it sounds absolutely fascinating. When does Carmen Morris say, I'm done? When does Carmen Morris say, I've climbed the mountain? Or is there no mountain to climb? It's just simply, let's just get on with it and get it done. 
There would be so many things that might have me change my mind about continuing a business, continuing my business, but I don't actually have anything solid in place. You know, one could say, well, I'll wait till I'm 65 and I've grown the business as big as I can. Uh, But by that stage, I would probably be only a board member or even a shareholder if I've, you know, followed this model of replication across this period of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, There could be changes in life circumstances where I think to myself, you know what, I'm financially comfortable now. Mm. Maybe my investments do extremely well and I don't actually need a stream of income from a business anymore and that could be some years down the track. So I haven't actually made a decision about where I'm exiting. I am definitely still happy to continue running my business. There are definitely goals still to be accomplished. We've talked a, a lot about your bookkeeping and your um, and your passion for bookkeeping, but I just sort of want to wind down by talking about Carmen Morris and a, and a couple of other passions that you've that I know that you've had and you've briefly mentioned one a little bit earlier, and that's uh, ballroom dancing. Tell us about ballroom dancing, and I know if my wife's tuning in right now, she her ears have just pricked up because she has literally begged me for, I reckon, the last 15 or 20 years to go, let's go and join uh, the local ballroom dancing club here in Bunbury. You know, come on, come on. And I've been like, oh, yeah, maybe we'll see how we go sort of thing. So maybe don't um, flower it up too much for me, Carmen, but because uh, it may mean that I'm straight down to the local ballroom dancing uh, academy after this. Mm-hmm. But uh, what's what, what's happening with ballroom dancing in your world? I danced a lot as a child and I've always enjoyed it. I've Uh, basically tried a number of different styles, starting with classical ballet. And I did give it up for year 12 so I could focus on getting better results and didn't return to it for some time, but started to develop an interest. "Mm, I want to get back to dancing Mm -hmm. and tried a few different ballroom studios and didn't find anything that I liked. And mum bought me a voucher for Christmas one year and that was a great studio. It wasn't women dancing with women, it was women dancing with men and that was more my cup of tea. And... (laughs) Basically, I just took off like a rocket (laughs) and that was 15 years ago. I didn't really think when I started that I would get into it at a competitive level, but knowing my personality, that's not exactly a surprise. (laughs) I just wanted to get better and better and better and better and then I was like, oh, you can get a dance partner and you can compete. I'm like, oh, okay, let's, you know, give that a try. So for me, it is the yin and yang of my life, bookkeeping and dancing. They are so different, but one balances the other. Like if you were only a dancer, you know, you can think as a bookkeeper, okay, if you're dealing with a client that's just a dancer, you'd think, oh my gosh, they just don't get any of this finance stuff. So for me, I'm more balanced as a person. During the day, I'm doing a really left brain job. It's compliance, it's numbers. I'm at a desk with a computer. And in my evenings, I'm off to the dance studio and I'm moving my body, I'm expressing and I like it because I can express emotion through Mm -hmm. the body, Mm -hmm. dance to music, you know, and when I'm dancing, I can't think about anything. I can barely talk to somebody cohesively (laughs) when I'm dancing. So I have to shut off. For some people, they meditate. For me, I dance. Yeah, right. It's a way of quieting the mind and just focusing on one particular element. And then, of course, it's very active, which you know, is a great compliment to sitting at a desk all day. So for me, I feel like a more complete person when I'm dancing. Beautiful. So in 30 seconds, 
sell to me why Rob Marshall should go and, you know, do what his wife's been asking him for a while now and join the local um, ballroom dancing studio. What, what, what for, from, a, from your perspective, is ballroom dancing just a personal thing for Carmen Morris or have you seen, you know, men in particular get a lot of benefit out of ballroom dancing? Some guys have gone to ballroom dancing to meet girls. Now, if you're married, that might not be your reason for going. And then some of <laughs> them end not. up competing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not what they expect at all. They think, oh, I'll just go to dancing to meet girls, not thinking that, wow, this might actually be a whole lot of fun. I would say it's a great way to exercise and have fun and socialize all at the same time. You get great endorphins if you've been, even if you're just doing social dancing, like the endorphins that you have at the end, you jump in your car, you feel fantastic. I drive home from dancing with the music on, it's cranked up and I'm <laughs> really happy. And so I think that, you know, just the joy factor when you're finished, you've exercised, you've socialised. I think it's great for washing emotions out of the system. For me, it's multifaceted. And the great thing about dancing, I've read some excerpts of studies, it helps prevent mental illness. Right. There you go. So things like, you know, Parkinson's, dementia, Mm -hmm. people who dance have a much lower incidence of mental health issues as they age. Well, there you go. I'm definitely keen to explore it from that perspective alone and probably more importantly is that the facts are, I don't know why I've avoided it because uh, I don't there's nothing better in my life than to spend some time with my wife. So uh, I definitely, uh, I'm probably uh, the, the fool for not taking that up and I think you've just about inspired me enough to go out and check it out. So I'll do that, Carmen. Thank you for, your, thank you for your inspiration there. So let, let's finish. We start with some opening balances. We've got to, we've got to tie the, uh, the, the, the balance sheet down. Got to make sure that it all adds up at the end of the day, as we know, as good bookkeepers. So I've got uh, three closing balances to finish off with. So on the dancing theme, you know, of course, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the assumption therefore is that you, you love dancing with the stars and watching dancing with the stars. Is that right? And if so, or even if it's not, my question is if there's one person that you would absolutely just take the first opportunity that came along to be a dancing partner for half an hour, anybody in history or anybody in the world, who would that be? I don't know if I'd really say that I have someone that I'd want to really dance with. There are some great people in my studio, uh, people that have achieved great results at an international professional level. Right. We're talking top 12. Then the guy in my studio just won the Australian Professional Ballroom Championship. So there are very great, great quality dancers around me in my everyday. Yep. Uh, As far as Dancing with the Stars, no, I don't really enjoy it. I don't even watch TV to start with and haven't for probably (laughs) 25 years. (laughs) Uh, I have seen snippets of it here or there where people have, you know, I've been to someone's house and it's been on, but you have an amateur dancing with someone who's a relatively good dancer. Mm -hmm. And I don't get a lot of joy out of watching amateurs. When you have professional ballroom champions in your own dance studio, yeah. why would you watch dancing Yeah, no, cool, exactly. Why are you watching TV when you can go and see it live every week in your case? So love that answer. All right, question two. You did also reference this and um, we didn't really explore it deeply, but I, I've, we've got a minute or two to, to, to dive into it now. I believe you're an avid reader of books or have been in, in over, your, over your journey. Is there one, I want one book that you are going to tell me, Rob, you need to go and read this book. 
it's a it's an absolute must read. What would it be? Wow, really tough question. question. Yeah, tough Mm, one. Because there are so many good ones that I've read over time, each one speaking to a different subject. I would say probably my all-out winner would be Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah. It's a really simple book, but I think that if you take those principles and apply them to your life, then financially speaking, you're, you've got a really good trajectory. Yeah. No, I must admit, I think it's on the shelf. I think it's one of those ones. Sadly, I'm one of those dudes who will go, yeah, I'm going to read that, might get, you know, two chapters in and then get distracted and don't finish it off. So I have a feeling that's one of those. So I might uh, try and bring that one out. Um, you know, we're, I come from the generation of the e-myth, you know, reading that one copped a fair hammering back in the day. But, uh, yeah, no, great, great recommendation that. Um, and it was a tough question because especially if you're an avid book reader, that's like asking somebody, you know, what's their favourite music if, that's, if all they do is listen to music all the time. So that's a tough one. <laughs> so I'll, I'll ask you probably as our final question, the question that is the polarising question, it's one that, you know, no doubt. I've got to admit to it. I have um, I have pillaged this one a bit over the journey, but it fascinates me. It polarises people. It, it sort of splits communities. Carmen Morris, do you have pineapple on your pizza or do you not? <laughs> I don't eat pizza anymore, <laughs> but when I did eat pizza, I loved Hawaiian with pineapple. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am absolutely a pineapple on the pizza type guy. Uh, yes, yeah, so um, I'm, I'm very pleased to know. Carmen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you joining us today on Heart of the Bookkeeper. Um, your story is, is, is a great one. It's a unique one. I, I, I want to go back to the very start. I think it's, what it's called out is is your your fierce determination to do something really special in the bookkeeping community and and not once have you you've sort of indicated that anyone else has to necessarily follow that lead. It's been the determination of your own um, willingness and your own uh, direction to, to go where you have. Congratulations. Well done. And, and, and congratulations is another word for what you've done with On The Money Bookkeeping from all of us, I'm sure, we, we hope that you continue to have that success and continue to have that cell multiplication that you've talked about and uh, really look forward to seeing where things go for Carmen Morris and, and appreciate your um, contribution into the bookkeeping community here in Australia. Thank you very much, Rob. I'm hoping that uh, one day, Carmen, I can circle back to a lot of my guests and I'll be really keen to see how that evolution has continued to go and we'll make, we'll make sure that we track that at some point somehow. But thanks again, Carmen Morris, for joining us today on Heart of the Bookkeeper. Thanks, Rob. Thanks in a major way to Carmen for sharing her story with us in this episode. Keep dancing up a storm, Carmen, and we wish nothing but the very best for you and the team at On The Money Bookkeeping. As this is our last episode for 2022, we want to wish you, the listeners, all the very best for a blessed 2022 Christmas, and we really look forward to you joining us again in 2023 for more amazing stories and journeys of bookkeepers across Australia helping bookkeepers, helping business. Thanks to everybody at the Institute of Certified Bookkeepers who make Heart of the Bookkeeper happen and the support we get is amazing. And thanks especially to our amazing sound producer, Nat Marshall. 
Nat, we just simply couldn't do this without you and we hope that you have an amazing Christmas also. But most of all, we want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in in 2022. My name is Rob Marshall and I'd love for you to remember that we love your heart. <laughs>